Um, we're thrilled to get our October Lunch and Learn series started. Uh, we'll be every Tuesday this month. Uh, we have the privilege of having men and women from across the country really uh, join us via Zoom, or uh, I think we'll have one, one talk also in person um, to talk about work that restores. Um, we want to think about how we can do justly and love mercy, because Micah 6-8 talks about in and through our everyday work. Um, I'm going to introduce today's guests in just a couple minutes and let them tell you a bit more about themselves. But um, as I mentioned, if you if you heard as we were talking, we're trying a bit of a new format as we try to figure out what is a new normal sort of in this uh, hopefully post nearing post pandemic end of, of the season. Um, so I'm here in our offices in the Chicago Loop, and we have a handful of folks you can see in Sullivan Curtin's uh, uh, Zoom screen there. Um, who have joined us live and they're in the other room just behind me. Uh, but we're excited to have uh, all of you from are coming from all over the place. I think, like I said, it looks like we have a New York and a Chicago contingent. Um, so glad to have you with us, even if you can't make it into the loop. Uh, we're glad to offer sort of this hybrid Zoom option. If I've not got to meet you in person, uh, my name is Melissa Mackey. I'm the director of Faith and Work Chicago, and that's the ministry of Crew City and Holy Trinity Church. We are committed to helping the scattered church live out our faith in the context of our daily work for the good of the city and the glory of God. And so all of the programming that we do is with that desire to help you indwell the story of scripture in your daily life and have a biblical lens for the work that you do every day. Uh, we've got some things coming up this fall. Uh, you can always learn more about that at faithandworkchicago.com. I am particularly looking forward to a women's workshop that we're going to host here on Saturday, October 23rd. Uh, that'll be here in our office. We'd love to have you check that out. Um, we can, can make it in for that. Um, but uh, today and for the next three weeks, we're going to dig into how faith and work and mercy and justice come together. Uh, too often, these are kind of siloed ministries in our churches, or they're thought about as separate tasks of discipleship. We do our Monday through Friday work over here, and then maybe we devote some time to service that we think about as mercy and justice kind of over here. Uh, but we really want to spend time this month exploring how these things are actually so intertwined, that our impulse for flourishing uh, and justice in the world towards the marginalized and our, our impulse for flourishing and our work um, really spring up um, from the same root. So I'm excited to get started today. Uh, by welcoming our special guests uh, coming all the way to us from Brooklyn, New York. We have pastor, speaker, thought leader, podcaster, documentary maker, and my friend, Russ Wilberry. Wave hello. I'm going to stop sharing so you can see him a little bit better. Uh, and then also, um, I would like to think of her as my new friend, um, Shannon Nelson Tay. She's a vice president on BlackRock's investment stewardship team. Uh, she advocates for sustainable business practices there and She's gonna tell you a little bit more about herself as well and, and even just get to hear a bit about why this is an important topic for both of them. But a heads up on where we're going. Uh, they're gonna to, to share for a bit, a little bit back and forth. Uh, at the end, we'll, we'll try to save some time for Q&A. And so if you have some questions as they're going along, if some things pop into your mind, feel free to just drop those in the chat. Um, you can put it in the chat to everyone or you can send it just directly to me and I'll make sure we, um, we get, uh, we get to that towards the end as we wrap up our time together. So I've been talking way too long. Uh, without further ado, I want to welcome Rasul. I'm going to turn it over to you and have you take it away for our session today. 
Great. Thanks so much. And it's a pleasure for me to be here with you and uh, love the fact that you have taken your lunch hour to engage in this. I see some of you eating. I'm a little jealous right now because I didn't get a chance to eat yet, but uh, I will get there. Um, but um, this is an honor for several reasons. One, uh, Melissa and I go way back. Uh, I served uh, for in crew uh, ministry with in the city ministry for uh, years uh, prior to transitioning recently uh, to not only being a bivocational pastor in terms of serving in a church context, but also with a ministry called Our Daily Bread. You might remember the booklets with the images in the middle. Uh, we do a lot more than that, including the podcast and docu-series that Melissa mentioned. But um, specifically, this issue of work injustice is so, uh, I found it to be so foundational to uh, my, my ministry and how I see the world for several reasons. Um, one, um, my major was Africana studies and my minor in sociology. And so I spent a lot of time looking at issues of just society and how the impact of injustice has uh, not only just impacted our past, um, but also our present. And um, so, for example, if you look at the fact that uh, every major industry uh, in America was needed to prop up the system of slavery. So you had those who were from the legal profession, lawyers, politicians, who actually wrote laws uh, that codified this unjust practice. But not only that, you had banks who uh, like JP Morgan and Bank of America and these other banks who literally use slaves as collateral um, and to, for loans. Uh, but not only that, you had clothing uh, and those who were in design and in, in the fashion industry, the Brooks Brothers was considered top of the line uh, slave clothes. Um, even when you go to, you know, alcohol and liquor, Jack Daniels uh, was, you know, used slave labor. And so here's the idea behind that. What would it look like if the people in all of those industries would have chosen to live out a biblical framework of justice in the context of their work? As a pastor, I recognize that uh, people will probably spend about max 5% of their time ever in a church. And 95% of that time is spent outside of the church. And so we need to be able to help people have a framework for thinking about what to do with that 95% of the time, especially in the vocational space, seeing work as a calling. So I'm going to just kind of go through some um uh, the theological framework that has kind of helped me understand this uh, in a way. Um, no uh, talking about my mess of a desktop, please, uh, while we just kind of move on. I know I'm a mess, but that's fine. But we're going to talk about work is justice. And a key component of this has to look at how we think of the gospel itself. And uh, I look at it as the whole gospel versus the whole gospel. And um, so what, I, what do I mean by the whole gospel, the gospel with a hole in it? Um, the whole gospel, the gospel with a hole in it only has two chapters. The first is we, we're sinners. And the second chapter is we need to get saved from sin. This is what a lot of us, especially in evangelical spaces, may have kind of just kind of had the emphasis on like, this is it. People are sinful. They need to pray to receive Jesus. Now, the problem is um, that doesn't play out in a way that is functional in a workspace and it's not complete. This is what Michael Lindsay, who wrote Faith in the Halls of Power, said when he observed um, the impact of those who were in Hollywood in terms of who were who are Christians. He said they differ little 
from others in the entertainment, entertainment industry. They drive luxury cars, live in exclusive communities and worry that their fame and talent will evaporate over, uh, overnight. That essentially what he saw was that those who were in these spaces, because their framework wasn't robust enough to think about all of life, their worldview and their vision, it didn't really end up impacting what they did on a day-to-day basis. Now I'm gonna contrast that with the whole gospel, full, complete. This gospel has all four chapters. The first chapter is that God designed us in a good world. And creation is a very important component of that. The second part is sin damaged us in the world. We are indeed sinners in need of salvation. Jesus is the restorer of us and the world and that God will fully heal us and the world. And you see there's a combination of the individual and the collective sense of all of these. So just to go briefly kind of go through this, and I'm gonna go through fast so I I get enough time for my friend uh, Shannon to really share on a practical level. But one, designed for good. And the design for good and the aspect of creation, this is something that we sometimes miss, is that what God says in the beginning, let us make you know, man in our mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock, wild animals, creatures. And, and this aspect, there's several things. One, God says, it is good. It is good after each day. Day six, he says, it is very good after he makes man. But he immediately, God immediately gives mankind, the man and the woman, work to do. And, and, and some, some of us, we get that, we check that box off. But the other part of that that's so important is that that work reflects the character of God himself who leverages his power as creator for the good of those around. And so creation is supposed to, and our mandate, the cultural mandate to rule and have dominion is also supposed to reflect that same sense of using power and leveraging it for the good of all. It's baked into the origin story. Um, of creation. Okay, damaged by evil, the world becomes broken by sin. And that brokenness is not just individuals doing bad things, but because that sense of uh, responsibility, that stewardship that we were given from the beginning to rule stuff and to work, that means that those systems have also been broken. The third chapter is that Jesus redeems all things, not just my personal soul, but he ask, you know, remember when he prayed, you know, and they asked Lord, teach us to pray. And he gave the Lord's prayer. What we call is that. And he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is a request. That is a call out of the fact that let the earth look more like heaven, look more just, look more good, look more kind, look more restorative. We see this in uh, Jeremiah 29, 7. Uh, you know, where it says also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This, uh, this symbiotic relationship between where we live and what we do. And that word peace in the uh, Hebrew is shalom. And that sense of shalom, that sense of wholeness also speaks to a sense of justice. In his book, Richard Stearns, who was the uh, head of World Vision, uh, and he called The Hole in Our Gospel, where I get this framework, he says, we must move beyond an anemic view of our faith as something only personal and private with no public dimension, and instead see it as the source of power that can change the world. And Richard Stearns left uh, a, you know, a lucrative profession um, in order to, to, to use his, uh, the skills and business that he did 
have uh, to in Linux. It was like, you know, this kind of uh, Linux company that does high end, you know, uh, like dishes and things like that and jewelry and stuff. And he did, decided to work with World Vision. And um, and so that was a key component that he was like, look, we have to have a public dimension of how we see faith. Uh, this is how William Wilberforce Force put it, a private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. A private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. William Wilberforce was the youngest person to ever be uh, elected to parliament in the 1700s when he was, and, and he had a vision um, from his calling in his faith to be part of a process that would end the slave trade in England. It took two decades for him to do it. Um, and he did this in partnership with the Clapham sect, as they were called, which was a group of people who were using their uh, expertise in the public sphere to uh, promote justice in their world. And it ended up having a profound change and significant uh, impact in the world. What well, is a key verse as we think about it? When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. Uh, and for Proverbs eleven ten. And this is an interesting verse because I think sometimes in the American context, we would go, the righteous prosper, the city doesn't necessarily rejoice because somebody's had a good quiet time or because they, you know, are living, uh, you know, according to biblical sexual ethics. That doesn't cause the city to celebrate. And that's because we don't have a fully robust enough understanding of what righteous means. Righteous here is the word sadakim in Hebrew, which has three orientations. It has a God orientation, which does speak to our sense of uh, holiness, our sense of personal integrity. But it also has an inward sense of righteous, of the fruit of the spirit, which is compassion. And it has an outward sense of righteousness in terms of how we treat our fellow human beings and even the world and the creation that God has given us. And so righteous, so when the, the, the city celebrates and rejoices because the righteous are living, they know that when that person is put in position of influence and power, that they're going to use that power exactly how God it intended from Genesis chapter one, which is for the flourishing, the goodness, the, the promotion of, of, of fairness for all. And uh, this is from Amy Sherman uh, in her book, Kingdom Calling. She says, because the Sadakim, the righteous uh, in Hebrew, uh, view their prosperity not as a means of self-enrichment or self-aggrandizement, but rather as a vehicle for blessing others, everyone benefits from their success, which is why the people rejoice. So this is what James, Dr. James Hunter in this Change the World, he says, as a natural expression of its passion to honor God in all things and to love our neighbors as ourselves, the church and its people will challenge all structures that dishonor God, dehumanize people and neglect or do harm to creation. That all of this is part of our calling. All of this is part of what it means to use work in a good way. And so uh, a book that I really recommend is Dr. Amy Sherman's Kingdom Calling, uh, Vocational Stewardship for the Common Good. It is a phenomenal book that really unpacks this with a lot of examples. So if you're thinking about how to play this out in your particular industry or field, she actually has a whole chapter in the book that's dedicated to specific examples of how people live that out. Another book that you may be familiar with, Tim, Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor, uh, Dr. Sherman was, you know, influenced very much by uh, Dr. Keller, but also kind of expanded in that, particularly in this aspect of justice. So I wanted to just recommend those two. 
and um, so and just encourage you go rejoice the city uh, cause the city to rejoice by being uh, equitable and by being promoting justice where you are. Now you might be asking, okay, how can I live this out? How can I live out my kingdom calling at work? And that's where I will get a chance to bring out my friend and uh, compatriot here today, uh, Shannon Nelson Ty. Uh, so Shannon, I I will now uh, kind of give give folks an opportunity to um, hear from you. Uh, please tell them who you are and uh, you know and why you decided to you know what this aspect of of, of work, faith, and work and justice means to you. Definitely. Thank you, Pastor Rasul. Hi, everyone. I'm Shannon Nelson Tai, and I'll share a little bit about my professional journey. It's wrapped up in my personal journey and my spiritual journey as well. So I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, in a pretty large family, the youngest of five, although I'm a triplet, so it still counts, but it's a little different. Anyway, I, my, my siblings and I all knew that in order to go to college, we'd have to get scholarships. And so we were, we prioritized education. We worked super hard and we were fortunate. Uh, my triplet sisters and I followed our older brother to Duke. And it was at Duke that I was first exposed to economics. Before then, I didn't, I didn't really know anyone in corporate America. And so there was so much of my Duke experience that just expanded my perspective of the world and what was possible. And so attending info sessions that the banks or you know, different financial firms put on played a big role in that, different mentors and coaches. But also I studied abroad, which was a specific decision I made to try to understand what I could do with my econ degree. So I studied in London first semester and in New York first semester. And the summer before my junior year, I had worked at our business school, but I had a lot of friends who'd come up to New York or to Chicago or wherever and had worked in finance. And so they all shared with me that although, although they knew I was really good at economics, they weren't sure that I would do great in financial services. And a couple of them kind of discouraged me from that. They're like, you're a Christian, you really love Jesus, this might not be the place for you. So as I was going into my year away from Duke, I asked God to, you know, to direct me and to show me people in financial services who excelled in their work and who maintained their walk with him. And um, he answered that prayer just really phenomenally. My dad is one of the most gregarious people I've ever met in my life. And he's always taught me whenever you're in someone's city, you let them know. And he was like, I only know one person in London. And he introduced me to a gentleman that who he worked with. He and my mom worked with this gentleman's parents at a, a missions agency. And this man happened to be the chief risk officer of Bank of America. And so, you know, I just connected with him and would go to church with his family. But he also led a small group for people in finance. And so we'd get together on Tuesday nights and have beer and talk about God. And it was, you know, a 40-fold answer to the prayer because I was able to meet so many people across different banks and, and funds and firms who were pursuing the things of God, um, even as they advanced in their careers. And because I'd had such limited exposure to corporate America and financial services, uh, Mark was his, the gentleman's name. He also set up a day for me to visit the trading floors at Bank of America. And I remember at one point in the midst of the day, stepping outside with his admin assistant while she took a smoke break and we were just chatting. And I think she was wondering like, why do I know this middle-aged man? And so she was just asking, you know, how we were connected. And I shared that we were family friends and that I went to his Bible study. And she was like, oh, you know, I'm not religious, but Mark is the best boss I've ever had. And I think it has to do with his faith. And so I knew that God was telling me I could go into finance and still maintain my walk with him. But I also knew that I needed other people to do it. And so when I 
I graduated, I moved to New York and I started working at BlackRock. And at the same time, I launched a small group for people in finance. And it started out just with me and it grew. I got a partner, Jojo, and grew to six people. And over the five years that I led it, we had over 60 individuals from across so many different sectors of finance, uh, all seeking that same question of like, what is the story God's telling in financial services? And when I, because I started it my first year as an analyst, my initial prayer was God send us a leader. And it became pretty clear early on that I, I was the leader. And so then my prayer became, God, will you train me? And that's how I got connected to Redeemer Center for Faith and Works and went through their faith and finance class and learned a lot of, a lot of the elements that Rasul brought to bear in the beginning of this conversation, just in terms of understanding God's intent and creation and the implications of the fall of man for all of our vocations. Um, and it was just really great equipping um, for how to think about righteousness and justice um, within financial services. And that frame and those insights have continued uh, to, to follow and to incorporate even as I left BlackRock to get my MBA from Harvard and spent a few years at the New York Fed. And when I was at the New York Fed, I spent a good amount of time in Chicago at the Chicago Fed as well. So perhaps not too far from some of you all. And now I've uh, about three years ago returned to BlackRock in a, a team called Stewardship um, of all things, but we really focus on encouraging solid governance and sustainability practices at publicly traded companies. And I'm still growing and learning and reflecting um, just as I'm sure all of you are as well. So that's my background and how I got connected to thinking um, pretty intentionally throughout the last 15 years or so about vocation and faith. Thanks so much for sharing that, Shannon. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to this part where we just kind of get to talk and I'll ask you some questions and hopefully it'll be some things that uh, kind of can provoke other people's, uh, you know, thinking as well. Um, and and so Shannon can be a bit humble. So I just want y'all to hear in case you didn't pick up on working at the Fed and BlackRock and all these things like she's kind of a big deal you know, Harvard MBA, all those things. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll just brag on you. You don't have to, you know, say anything on that. But um, but I'm curious, uh, you know, you shared earlier that your Christian friends discouraged you from pursuing a career in finance, thinking it was incompatible with your growth as a Christian. Why, why did they say that? And, and what have you seen that either have supported those currents or how, how have those concerns played themselves out in terms of, you know, as you leaned into this industry? Sure. I think that the narrative that, you know, some of those um, people had experienced in their own internships, and I think it was both Christian and non-Christian friends who just knew how important my faith was to me. Um, I think that the narrative that they were operating under was that in order to be successful in financial services, you can't just be competitive, you have to be cutthroat, you have to be aggressive in a way that doesn't honor human dignity. Uh, and I am very competitive, I love to win, I love to seek excellence, not perfection, just excellence, but I'm also very people oriented, relationship oriented. Um, and I don't believe that, you know, I, would, I wouldn't want to, to be in a, um, a lane that where success required selfishness and, you know, it, it required operating at the detriment of others. And I would say that, so, and so that's why my experience with Mark and his small group was so pivotal um, in understanding that, yes, that may be a lane that people operate in, but it's not the only one. And then I would say, I've definitely, you know, observed and seen and experienced different challenging situations in financial services, which I imagine are common across industries, um, even the more altruistic industries. Um, but I, I also think of, I do think of 
my career in finance as a calling. And I remember still being in college and talking to my mom about just thinking through if I should maybe go into ministry. There was so, so much um, of my spiritual formation that was influenced by my own campus ministry experiences and um, being a part of the impact movement and, and crew and university. So many different books were always like, what is God calling you into ministry? And I remember talking to my mom about this and she was like, you don't, you don't have to work purely in like the traditional sense of ministry to be mindful of furthering God's kingdom and honoring God in the way you work. And she encouraged me to consider the access that I had to and the skill set I was building and the opportunity to, you know, to enter some of these pretty exclusive organizations and to do so in a way that intentionally glorified him and honored him. Um, and, you know, even eventually to make money to help fund more traditional forms of ministry as well. Um, and so I think that, yes, the short answer is yes, I have definitely seen and experienced some of the challenging aspects of finance in my own relationships and, and career path. And like even two weeks ago, I had a really challenging experience with a couple of colleagues that were really trying to impose a certain way of communicating, like inappropriately on me in a way that I'm just like, I'm actually not going to do, I'm not going to re reciprocate that, but we can like deal with the issue at hand. Um, and so I think that those things, at least in my own experience, they always exist, but we can prayerfully and thoughtfully, um, and like just with good counsel and um, friends navigate those spaces as challenging as they can be. That's, that's so good. And so I, I think I'm hearing you say, yeah, there were, and that was interesting that even non-Christian friends were also like, hey, girl, you a Christian, yeah. you sure you want to go into finance? <laughs> like that's, that's pretty interesting. But so I hear you saying that like, yeah, they, there were elements of the culture that pushed against my faith. But I also heard you say, but the honest truth of the matter is that is in every field, in every um, industry, um, including ministries um, and, and others as well. So that's a reality. Um, so I'm curious about what did you do in particular to help overcome those challenges and have the type of... Um, longevity that you've had, you know, instill that same vision of, of, of kingdom and, 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 and justice in the midst of that. What, you know, what, yeah, what are some things you've done? Sure. And before I answer that, to your point about even, you know, alt altruistic industries or ministry, like they are, they're all full of imperfect people, just like all of us. And I even think about some of my friends who went into med school, which was originally what I thought I'd do when I went into Duke. And, you know, just even the path of, how we try to burn people out in that profession, it's, it's just, it's confusing. Um, and so, anyway, so towards your question of how have I addressed some of the challenges. Um, first, I would say one of the first decisions I've made going into finance was trying to find a company that aligned with my, my values. And so um, as I was, when I first started at BlackRock, it was very much so a team oriented culture and focused on like people being whole people, even as they work super hard. Um, secondly, I think, you know, not having experience with professional services previously, I definitely relied on and sought out and built very thoughtful mentor and coaching relationships because sometimes you just need to talk through things with another person. Um, I think like my small group community and my church community, I think it's so important to, to create those relationships and, and spaces where you can can be with people who understand your vocation, but who also understand uh, your faith. Um, because, you know, even as I mentioned, the desire I've always had to 
treat people with respect and to you know seek reconciliation and to overcome conflict i you, you have to still be shrewd just like the bible says as well and navigating all these spaces as well you can't be a doormat and find success um and so i think the last thing i would say is i think throughout some of these dynamics that I've mentioned i've also been aware of I don't think it's the culture of finance as much. Maybe it's a finance, maybe it's New York City, whatever it is. I'm sure you guys experienced this in Chicago as well, but just that constant grind and like there's no rest. That's not biblical either. And throughout my, I would say, especially the first half decade I worked, so much of what God was speaking to me was like to recognize and honor my limits and to learn how to take breaks and to honor the Sabbath. Um, And I came pretty close to burning out within my first few years of working. And I remember one of my managers telling me like, you need to learn how to say no. And I was like, oh, I thought you guys wanted me to do all the things. Um, And he's like, no, that's not sustainable. And so I think, and then even going to business school, I was taking a bit of a break (laughs) to rest and to learn healthier habits in life. And so I think um, responding to whatever God's telling you, whenever God speaks to me about things, like I'm telling you to rest or I'm preaching you how to pray or whatever, he usually says it a million different ways in different forms. And so responding to that light, being obedient to him. Um, Mm -hmm. and sometimes it can look like exploring, like what would it look like for me to learn how to rest in the midst of, you know, a ton of work? Um, and it can take some trial and error. That's so good. And one of the things that I, I, I took away that I just wanted to amplify is that, you, you, you did lean into the, your sense of profession as a calling. So it wasn't just chasing dollars or whatever, but there was a sense, but then there also was an aspect where you had in your criteria of where you were going to work places that were more likely to fit the sense of values that you had. And, and I think that that's a really interesting uh, thing to kind of pull out because, you know, that, that means, we have some agency, but we also might need to make different ch- types of choices in light of, you know, what we value. Um, I also like the fact that you bring out, yeah, every industry has its issues and challenges. And on that, I, I you know, I, I did want to kind of zoom in, especially with this theme of justice today, because I think it's easy to see something like being a doctor or being an educator in an at-risk community as kind of having a built-in you know, um, justice component. Um, but I'm curious about how you see that in your own profession, because, you know, people think about finance or whatever professions folks might be joining us with that don't fit those kind of direct service industry kind of space. Like, tell us how you see justice playing out or that issue justice or injustice playing out in your particular space. Sure. No, it's a great question um, because I, I definitely get the sense that there are certain industries or sectors where it's it's just perhaps an easier reflection for how you're you're honoring God. Um, but for financial services, I think I think it's easy to think of financial services as just like focused on making a few people wealthy. Um, and although there is, um, you know, there's the opportunity to make significant wealth in different parts pockets of financial services. I think that when you take a step back and think about what is the story God's telling in finance is that this, this is the part of our economy that should be the allocators of capital and providing like the access and equity to capital that enables other parts to function. And so it should enable economic flourishing more broadly. If you think about small businesses, for instance, as they grow and scale, they, you know, you think about the banks that create the marketplace for others, for investors, like especially long-term investors, like endowments and foundations and pensions to to put their money to work. Um, 
So I, I think that that I think if you, if you think about it in that way, as the allocators of capital and the builder, the enablers of economic flourishing, I think that you can start to lean into a broader vision for financial services. And then I think beyond that, there's always the individual question of like how each of us um, interact with one another, interact with you know whatever whatever groups of folks we work with, whatever stakeholders, customers, or clients, or um, different vendors in a way that can either support that story being told or hinder it. And so the that I think that vision of working in a way that you're optimizing choices beyond just like optimizing your own advancement, your own comfort, your own wealth building towards like um, thinking about that economic flourishing more broadly. And so one thing that comes to my mind, like in my work and stewardship, we're speaking with different companies about how they're focused on the long-term, how they're driving long-term value for shareholders. But when you do that, you have to consider other stakeholders. And so one of the companies, one of my peers works with, it's actually Deer, it's a public company and all this information is public, um, but recognizing some of their complicitness in, that might not be the word, but they've been complicit in some of the ways that agriculture has developed in America to the extent in a way that's excluded black farmers, for instance. And so, you know, after George Floyd, we saw so many different companies rethinking, you know, how they've approached certain, how they've either contributed to or failed to, to not speak up to address systemic biases. And so they've been very intentional about, well, what are the things that we can do given our platform and our space in this industry to deepen access um, and success of a historically excluded group of people. And so I think that there's so much that you know, capital, financial capital, social capital, political capital um, can be used for um, oh. to address systemic injustices. And in order to perpetuate them, usually all it takes is silence. Mm. I'm going to ask a follow-up question and, and all, all, all those who are listening, you can feel free to uh, also put your questions to Melissa as, as they might come up and we'll definitely, you know, uh, address those with the time we have left. But I'm just kind of curious, like, how did you get there where you were like, of like, yes, I see this, my role in this industry as an opportunity to promote flourishing. Like, just like, how did you actually begin to see it that way in a way in which that impacted your day to day? Sure. So I think a lot of what you shared at the outset um, played a huge role. And so it was, you know, taking things like that, I think it used to be an eight week course at Virginia Center for Faith and Works on Faith and Finance, where we were reading a lot of the context or a lot of the texts that you'd highlighted. Um, we actually we did a dinner with Richard Stearns, um, the author of Our Holiness Gospel, and he shared like his the puzzle pieces for addressing poverty holistically. Um, but it's like exposing yourself to these different resources. And then, but then you actually need, and this is where I think people partners, co-laborers, accountability folks come into play in trying things because you try different actions and sometimes things don't work or sometimes you have to tweak and adjust. And so having people who you can speak with, who can ask you questions, um, who you're, you can genuinely walk closely through, through life with um, yeah. is a critical piece, I think, of how I've continued to develop my thinking and my actions and, and my vision for my career in this space as well. That's so good. And I, and I think that would also include doing things like lunch and learns at Faith and Work yeah. Chicago, right? Like as things that, and it really, that that is a important aspect. One of the things I brought up William Wilberforce, but I, I made sure to include the Clapham sect because in the book, uh, To Change the World by Dr. James Hunter, 
he observes that the primary Christian theories for changing the world have been influenced by what is called as the great man of history um, theory, which is that I should try to find or become this superhuman individual that uh, will then like Superman kind of come in and, and rescue. And what he actually said was that is wholly inaccurate way of looking even at those individuals. So oftentimes people will point to William Wilberforce and say, look at what he did. He fought, fought in parliament for 20 years to end the slave trade. And it's like, well, wait a minute. He was part of something that was greater than him. That was a community of people that came together to, to help form each other and be formed and think about these and motivate each other. And so the aspect of community is so important. Um, but I, I want to, you know, ask you this as well, which is that, you know, we can see the, in the negative consequences of unjust work practices and their impact on society. I mentioned slavery, but even more recently, when you look at the housing bubble that burst uh, back in 2008, that was a, as a result of predatory lending in, you know, the, um, the, just the entire housing, you know, industry from finance, et cetera. And it was an example of a failure of ethics. How do you see, how have you seen the role of justice play itself out in the concept of business and in, in industries in general? Sure. Um, and I think I, I started to answer this a bit in the last question, which is right. thinking about, uh, especially the amplified focus we've seen, I guess, on racial justice or on, yeah. on inequalities more systemically post George Floyd. I think we've just seen so many corporations lean into that and engage in that discussion with their investors as to like what does it look like? What is my role in relation to access and equity um, and in the way that I operate my business as well as in the fruits of my business? So in the way you operate, I think a lot of companies that I've been speaking with are reassessing their hiring practices, their, their retention, their promotion, their advancement from entry level all the way to their right. executive team and to their boards um, and thinking about, you know, if the way that we've accepted the status quo in our society mm -hmm. is indeed what we ought to accept, or if there is something further that we can aspire to and what it looks like for, um, you know, for us to, to, to define success in that way. Um, and so I think that historically in America, we've had a very shareholder focused form of capitalism, which, and I'm, I'm a foodie share to all of my clients, so I focus on their economic well-being, um, and I don't impose like an ethical or moral or values-based view on the world, on the companies I speak with on behalf of my clients, but I think there's just more and more people in our, in financial services who are aware of how considering other stakeholders is paramount in order to, yeah. in the long run, seeing that shareholder value created. And so understanding their, that their reputation or they may face greater litigation risks or their social license to operate in general is impacted by their employees um, protesting them, for instance, or <laughs> their investors raising concerns. And so I think that the, that I've, I see a lot of promise for how businesses continue to lean in and therefore us as employees of or managers or owners of businesses uh, have a chance to to really think through um, you know both righteousness our personal behaviors and choices but also um, our impact on broader society in terms of whether it's just or not. gotcha that I, I'm, I'm gonna take I'm gonna get you out of here on this last one and then we uh, we have you know some some more questions but and, and this is kind of like just noticing over the last few weeks we've seen 
injustice play itself out in the headlines. Um, just over the last couple of days, the National Women's Soccer League, uh, the commissioner stepped down because there was a coach involved in sexual assault cases. I mean, instances in several teams and they suppressed that. Of course, we know with just the Olympics, uh, you know, with the, the women's gymnastics team, that that's still a reckoning. Just Facebook over the last month, and I know you know, it shut down <laughs> uh, yesterday for a significant amount of time. But before that, this whistleblower announcing kind of uh, these things. And the thing that's interesting about these instances is in each of those cases, they would fall into companies that at least ostensibly refer to themselves as for the good, right? Like you would think a women's soccer league was for women. Like why would a, a, a female commissioner hide instances of sexual assault or Facebook, which at least communicates like, hey, we're about connecting people. And it's like, why are you suppressing information that shows, you know, that you're not that great at, you know, uh, or you're not even you're not even trying to in some ways um, to in some of the bad practices that come out of it. Like, how do you think about why organizations that say they're committed to these ethical frameworks often fail? And what can what when how you know what I guess takeaways should that have for us in our individual lives as we clock in and clock out each day? Mm -hmm. Sure. I think that so much of, you know, some of those really unfortunate situations that we see are, I think that there are things that all of us are susceptible to. And mm -hmm. so maintaining that humility to, to allow God and other people to speak into our lives and to like, to hold us accountable uh, to the standard of righteousness that we are able to experience through Jesus Christ is critical, um, you know, but everybody's not a believer and everyone's not seeking that same standard. And so I think in all of those situations that you'd cited, usually there's, there may be a, a perpetrator, there may be a, a person or a handful of people who are committing an action, but usually they're surrounded by a sea of people who are silent and who enable it. And I think oftentimes we think of the cost of speaking up as being too great. And sometimes it is quite great. Like I have a mentor who was a whistleblower decades ago and has never, he's not worked in financial services ever since, although he's been close to it through nonprofits um, because there, is, there can be, um, I, think it, I think that's probably illegal now, but back then, you know, where even now, even nowadays, there's, there's a, a risk that's taken to speaking up. And I think that's where um, seeking God's voice, seeking God's face, like understanding what he's calling us to do is so is so critical and important because we we need him to protect our identities to be established in him you know and not in anything else um including like even when i was referencing earlier about rest like the number of times god had to tell me like this isn't you you are not a machine you know like you're not does i didn't design you to go nonstop and to um I think that it's a form, it's a form of idolatry. There's just identity questions that I think we have to wrestle with and submit to God um, and allow him to transform in us. Um, and you think about, um, you know, stories like Daniel in the lion's den, like there are times when God steps in or his friends in the fire. There are times when he steps in and saves us and rescues us from the consequences of those things. Uh, but there are times when we, we go through them and he sustains us despite the challenge. Um, and so I think, leaning into partnering with God as he redeems us and redeems the world and redeems work. Um, you know, he calls us to count the cost of it. Mm -hmm. And so I, I hope that we can each find co-laborers engage in consistent dialogue and support of one another um, as we just persevere in the day to day. Um, Cause I think, I know I'm confident that 
we'll, we can see his hand. We can see his face um, around us. You know, we, we, we only see him part right now, but we'll get to see the whole story and the impact of, of obeying him and prioritizing his kingdom. Uh, that's so beautiful. And the thing I really, that resonates with me is that this work, this challenge or this question of work and justice is not just, sometimes it can feel like such a macro issue, like justice, like, man, how do I, as this individual who might be in this field for like three years, impact an entire thing. But what I'm hearing you say is that it starts, that work starts internally and making sure that I am willing to first see my uh, identity is rooted in Christ. Second, see my work as a calling that God has put me here to do. So I'm answering to a higher authority. And then third, um, just being willing to, 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 as a result of those things, you know, offer my life as a sacrifice. So, well, thank you so much, uh, Shannon, for sharing those things. Uh, Melissa, you, do you have any questions uh, that folks might have for Shannon or myself? Yeah, absolutely. You guys, this is such good stuff to chew on. Thank you so much um, for uh, for just helping us like think with us. Um, you know, Rasul, you talked about um, uh, Amy Sherman's book, Kingdom Calling, and and I love the way she talks about vocational stewardship. And I think it really speaks to what you just were saying. Um, you know, she talks about uh, um, how, you know, a- anywhere we're at in a company and, and any level we have platforms that we can steward on behalf of others. And so I wonder, Shannon or Rasul, either one of you um, would maybe talk about like, what are some of those things that no matter where we're at, uh, you know, starting out in our careers or in a company, um, we might think about how do we use this, you know, to, um, to think about this work as, as uh, um, res- restorative and, and, and on behalf of others. Can you maybe just give some thoughts or examples uh, of what that might look like? Yeah, I, I, I can start. Um, one thing is uh, what is sometimes referred to as power mapping. And in that, it's an idea of this is what sometimes local neighborhood organizers will use to say, OK, what is what are the issues in our community and what do we have in our group of uh, in our communal context to respond to those issues? And um, and so I think this is twofold. And, and I'm going to put the theological framework first to say that first we have to understand that this is a a spiritual issue right like that the gospel of the kingdom does speak to brokenness in our society and so you know there there's that part that is sometimes that's the hole in our gospel sometimes that we miss that but if we can see that then the second part becomes well what is it that i have within me that i can actually um have a skill set or a personal testimony or a burden in order to lean into that. And, and not just me, but those around me. Quick example of this. So when I saw the devastation in Haiti uh, from the earthquake last month, I was overwhelmed. And I sensed that God was telling me to do something. But I was like, I know nothing about disaster relief. I know nothing about, you know, anybody in Haiti that I can even call. So I reached out to a church that I was a part of in Indiana um, when I lived there and they, cause I knew they had a mission trip that they had sent a missions relationship with a pastor in Haiti, got his contact info, shared with some of the Haitian leader, the young uh, folks at our church who were of Haitian descent between the two of them, you know, we were able to uh, identify what the needs were and have people to give it the fi- finances to. And then through our relationship with a graphic designer, we were able to put out a call, we were able to raise $10,000 and gave 5,000 to the local church in uh, Port-au-Prince who then trans 
you know, ported the, the wood and the lumber and the sheet, sheet metal to help the uh, folks rebuild. And then we just gave the other 5,000 to a church that's the largest church in Haiti. I mean, largest Haitian American church in New York, who's, who has a community development corporation all over Haiti. And they've just even been there over the last month. So that's just kind of a, a personal example. And I think for me, what God taught me in that was, yeah, it's bigger than you, but I'm not asking you to figure it all out by yourself. I'm just asking you to care. And when I'm asking you to care, then I'm asking you to ask for help. And then from there, it just kind of continued to unfold. And now we're looking at not just having raised that $10,000, but having an ongoing relationship and even mission trips where we can send and have this ongoing relationship. So I think that that's a key component is just identifying what are the issues in my context? And then what is it that, who is it that God has put in my path to be able to be part of the solution? That's fantastic. Uh, I love the question because I, I remember going to conferences or, or lunch and learns or speaking to folks, especially when they were more senior in their career, when I was just starting out and feeling like, you know, speak, people just speaking about doing things that I'm like, I think you have the, you have the cloud and the reputation and the, the platform to do that. And so I think it's, it's a great question to consider at every level. How can, how can you lean in in this way? I think the first thing that comes to my mind is just remembering the power and the privilege of prayer. So even as we were speaking about the importance of community, um, like we, we have access to the throne room of God and the number of times that I've tried to do, to make something work and like, like even just doing my job or relating to a, a person or a challenging ego, whatever it was, just like see, like taking it to God <laughs> and getting wisdom or just getting his favor, whatever it was, is transformational. Second, and I journal my prayers and I love like keeping track of how God responds and how I see him move. And then secondly, I think, you know, maybe you can't, maybe speaking up looks differently across levels. Like at the very least, you can ask thoughtful questions. You can, you can show up to work and be prepared and be excellent. And as far as you can be excellent, you know, within your limits um, in a way that builds relationships, that builds trust, that builds reliability um, because people, when people go through challenges, um, when they're, when they are looking for solutions, like opportunity to have spiritual conversations in the workplace for me has mostly looked like doing so from a, a depth of relationship. Um, and so, you know, like people approaching me, um, in order, like even sometimes prayer, but what, like just looking for people who are interested in helping or interested in providing solutions. Um, and so I think being, being the sort of person that, um, that people will approach in that way, I think takes time and perseverance and, and consistency. And so those are two, like, regardless of level, you can be a person who listens and who, um, who's kind, you know, <laughs> just like the bare basics go a long way. It's fantastic. Um, I can't believe we are already at our time limit here. And I know Shannon has a hard stop. She's got to get back to work as I'm sure most of you do as well. Um, but man, uh, this is so helpful to be thoughtful of um, what does it look like to, to use whatever God has given us, um, our skills, our expertise, our experience, our platforms, just our, our care uh, and the relationships we have around us to enter into areas of, of injustice and, and, and mercy um, and steward what we have on, on behalf of others. This has been so helpful in, in beginning our conversation. Rasul and Shannon, it's just been such a, a blessing to have you with us today. Thank you, everybody who has joined us. Um, I think we have a, a lot to think about, and I'm excited to continue our conversation. 
uh, in this area of work that restores. Um, would love to have you join us again next week, uh, whether that's in person or online. Uh, we're going to welcome Pastor John Dennis, and he's going to talk about collaborative leadership that restores uh, this idea of collective impact for mercy and justice. And so I'm excited to have him. We'll have a guest with him as well. Um, but yeah, join us again, the same link or, or join us downtown. Um, but thank you again so much, Shannon and Rasul for being with us and uh, hope to see you guys again soon. Thanks. Have a great afternoon. Take care. Thank you all so much.